People like mm-hmm. to deal with racism as if it's like the end of Mario Kart, like going to Peach's Castle. Okay. It ain't that far away. It ain't a far away land, boo. For fuck's sake, a theater podcast, a.k.a. 4FS Podcast, hosted by Aaron Salazar. Episode 9, Heart and Fire. All right, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome. We are in episode nine. It is September. How did it happen? Time is taffy. I am Aaron Salazar. This is for fuck's sake, a theater podcast, aka for FS podcast. If it's your first time tuning in, welcome to the show. A little bit about me. I'm a New York City theater award-winning director and producer. And if you want to know a little bit more about that, visit 4fspodcast.com. Check out that bio. Or if you guys want to follow me on at Director Salazar on Instagram, it is a professional account. So, you know, feel free to join the party. All right. Let's talk about how fucking excited I am about our guest for September. I don't know how I wrangled this beautiful person into the show. We have none other then legend in the making morgan siobhan green is here i can't even take it all right so let's get a little backstory about this brilliant artist morgan has been kicking ass and taking names for a hot minute now most recently in american repertory theater in cambridge mass their production of moby dick that was written by david malloy and rachel chavkin they did that little show called great comet you might have heard of it uh she was in this show that some of you may have heard of. I don't know. It, it had a couple of downloads. I think it's called Be More Chill by Joe Iconis on Broadway over at the Lyceum. Off-Broadway, she has been really doing the fucking work. She was in Pipeline Theater's Folk Wandering uh, at Art NYC. She did Sweetie, directed and choreographed by the legendary Patricia Birch at the Signature Theater and was in Misconnections at the New Ohio Theater, which I love downtown off-Broadway. And in that one, they, uh, one of your reviewers was like, Morgan Siobhan Green has a powerful, versatile voice. Get into it. Uh, regionally, she was in Between the Lines, directed by Jeff Calhoun, who did a little show some of you might have heard of called Newsies at uh, Kansas City Rep. And she is a Bradley University alum with her BS and got her master's at Long Island University. Good morning, class. And uh, beyond all that, she is a multi-instrumentalist and was a fucking teacher in Brooklyn and the Bronx because a big part of Morgan's MO is she's deeply concerned about community and creation as a key element of her work. All right, everyone, let's give it up for Morgan Siobhan Green. Yes, Morgan. I'm so fucking thrilled that you're here. I can't take it. Uh, How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'm not as caffeinated as I would like to be in this moment, but I'm doing great. Well, well, we'll get you there. You can keep sipping throughout this whole process. I know I'm doing the same thing, too. I got to I got to get that caffeination, although it's been drying me out during this whole quarantine life more than it normally has. Or maybe I'm drinking more. I don't know how you feel about that. I feel like I'm drinking more everything but water. <laughs> Amen. Copy that. I hear everything you're saying. I know. I, I'm just basically drying the fuck out. I don't I don't drink anymore, but I definitely have enough caffeine that all of a sudden I start hearing noises and I'm like, maybe you should. It's time. Let's, <laughs> let's calm down. 
you 41 year old ass paranoid gay man. Yo, okay, so we're gonna let, let's jump right into this. Uh, let's do the thing that we do on our first episode of the month with our guest co host. In case you didn't hear, it's Morgan Siobhan Green. Uh, we're gonna go into our elevator pitch for anyone that hasn't been around for this before. So, what we do is you get two minutes ish to uh, tell us a little bit about anything you'd like to about your life or background or whatever feels good to you. How's that sound? That sounds great. I have not rehearsed any of this, so we'll see. No, there's this is this show is the antithesis <laughs> of rehearsal. I I it is the opposition of rehearsal. That is the whole point of it. Uh, or <laughs> tr- trust me, when I'm editing this shit, sometimes I'm like, bitch, make a declarative sentence. <laughs> if I have to, if I have to edit this anymore. So yes. So let's 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 just live in that authenticity. So. All right, Morgan, when you feel good, here's your elevator pitch. Okay, I'm going to say some things about myself. My name is Morgan Siobhan Green. I have a Celtic name. I'm all about dispelling belief of names matching bodies. I'm here to shock you. I was shocking since I came out of my mother's womb, whichever way that I came out. I have a dog. I got a dog during a pandemic and I bought the dog. So all the people harassing me about adopting a dog, I'm a Black woman living in America, and I'm going to do what I want to do to feel happy because no one is breeding dogs because Black people are buying them. I like cheese. I tried to give it up, and I decided, you know what? I'm going to eat cheese because cheese makes me happy. I'm going to consume it in copious amounts. Don't ask me which one's my favorite because they're all my favorite. I am shocking. I write what you haven't seen yet, and I love every single word of it. I love Princess Tiana, and I know that Disney is racist, but I need to have a moment, and I'm going to ride the ride at Magic Mountain, and I'm going to live my life. I'm going to be happy. I'm going to do better about drinking water and stretching in the morning, and I bought a Keurig, even though I shouldn't be drinking as much coffee as I want to, as I should, but I'm going to drink coffee anyway, and I do have a ring light, and I plug it in when I do auditions. I am here to explore to be adventurous, to advocate, to amplify, to create, to change, to evolve. And while doing that, I will and declare, I will have joy. That's my pitch. God damn it. I, that, it's, that is history. I don't even know. I, let's just, everyone. So thank you so much for tuning in to episode nine of For Fuck's Sake, a theater podcast. And we're done. I, I mean, truly, what a fucking mic drop. God damn it. All right. I'm uh, this is already an embarrassment of riches and I don't even know what to do. You just made my entire fucking day. Uh okay, let, let, let let's talk about some shit. First of all, I think it bears acknowledging because even though this comes out on Saturday and we're recording on a Tuesday, yo. So the VMAs happened, which I don't really want to unpack that even though I thought it was pretty it was amazing the production value. So Chloe and Holly, Chloe and Holly, right? Holly? Holly? We, we, we fact-checked it. Chloe, <laughs> what are those young people's names? Very talented. <laughs> they, they're singers, and I'm, I love that music. Um, yeah, I sent it to some other buddies who are over 40, like 44 plus, and it was adorable. Like, what kind of music is this? I'm like, oh my God, we're this is my demographic. Great. Um, all of them losing their minds. So Chloe and Hallie, Chloe X Hallie, fucking did Ungodly Hour? On the VMAs, by the way, on their own terms, because they didn't fly to New York to record it, they recorded it remote from wherever they were nearest. And I have to say, I I will never recover from that <laughs> fucking performance. What the fuck? It was astounding, like aspirational. The song, 
hands down. The the fucking director of photography, the costumes, the ography, the lighting, all the of hair, it. The edges were laid. It, okay. Ev- I, the edges. I was looking at the hairs first and I was like, oh. meticulous and yes did we all know that four years ago they were picked up rightfully so by queen b so everyone's like word right then disney caught on and was like hey be ariel and we're like great how nice for you and here were these like young talented ladies and everyone was for it but i don't i don't know how all the rest of you feel but they that was like we are here we have arrived like icon status as far as i'm concerned moving forward oh yes holy shit and it was actually the and and it was smart because now they're i believe maybe 1920 or 1819 i i don't know that factually you guys look it up but it was a smart way to show this empowered these these empowered two young women moving into adulthood owning everything and totally just pulverizing the industry with that performance it's like, okay, everyone needs to step their shit up because this happened remotely with no backup dancers. Okay, this happened with no backup dancers. And it was brilliant because when someone's that badass, you just put the sickest costume on them, style them, single fucking LED, single fucking laser drop light on them with just some backing lights. I, it, it was, I can't, I'll, I can't take it. I don't, I don't know how you felt. Give them a Tony for that. A Give Tony them- for me. You know what's interesting? The thing that that show made me feel, the reason I'm so excited is because it gave me so much life because I love the music industry. One day we'll talk about it back in the day when my youth, when I was a little younger than Morgan, I I was in the music industry and they were kind of developing me to be my own little thing as an electro person. Back when people were like, I think this new electric sound is going to be really big. I, I can't. Um, And... uh so there's a big part of my heart that loves it, but I, I have to say I've been fairly underwhelmed by a lot of it lately, just in terms of like the iconography of what music used to be. Like someone would show up and be be the thing, right? Like The weekend that was iconic. Iconic, yeah. iconic, right? Which is why they're big, you know? And we've, we've had some of them, but to have two new young people show up and pulverize, I feel like it's been a hot minute to me. Let's just say like, they have the range. Mm-hmm. Like, first off, let's talk about the range. Like, these are two Black women who've been singing for years. Chloe was in uh, the Tyler Perry movie with Angela Bassett. Yeah. She was in that film. She played young Beyonce. Literally. And the the evolution of Black artists, like, when you watch, there's always a time period where you, you watch them evolve and you're like, oh, you did what you had to do, and now you're doing what you want to do. Mm-hmm. And so watching them, one, like, my favorite thing of theirs is always their covers. Like, they cover, like, hip-hop songs. You know when people, like, really destroy, like, when Taylor Swift destroyed Earth, Wind, and Fire? And it was like, nobody asked for that. Yeah. Don't yeah. ask you to, to do um, September. And then you have Chloe and Holly that, like, they remix everything like yeah. all the trap songs on their guitar making folk like the runs the riffs clean and i can tell you i don't know if i've ever heard them scream yeah and it is, it is absolutely exhilarating and validating to hear two black women sit in the like eccentricness and 
uniqueness of their own voices. Like if I heard them singing and I had never heard a song before, I'd be like, hold on, that's Chloe and Holly. And it's like, that's what the industry should be, is yeah. that no two people sound alike, mm -hmm. are, are, are trying to perfect the same artistry and try to beat each other out. Because I am a... I am a loud proponent that there's enough space for everybody because we all take enough space right now. So why should I have to be like you, who's an artist, to mean that I'm an artist? I'm an artist because I am one. Yep. And it's actually really, truly that simple. So just watching them do that and like, thank you for sending me that because I've truly been just watching <laughs> and Bob's Burgers. And I really just restarted The Real Housewives of New Jersey from season one. Oh, it's it's because gold. It's gold. It's real gold. Yeah. But thank you for sending me that because it was just watching them like stand in their truth and do it their way and be like, okay, you know, there's been a lot of tragedy. Yep. You know, personal tragedies, widespread, universal tragedies, but you know, not to take it down, but you know, I mean, the loss of Chadwick Boseman, and yep. I actually got to meet yep. Chadwick Boseman. Yes. Um, Talk to me about that if you want. Yeah, it was. So I think I manifested it because I had a friend Photoshop me in between the picture of Killmonger <laughs> and T'Challa. Amazing. And I was like, smiling because I did a Samsung commercial for like literally Jamaica. So I'm like smiling in between both of them. And I call myself the queen of Wakanda. And this was like March, the year that Black Panther came out. Mm -hmm. And then I had a friend hit me up in like September being like, yo, you want to go to the SAG screening of Black Panther? And I said, do I want to go? Oh, I want to go to this. Yes. And I didn't really know what was like happening. Over on 57th, right? On 57th Street, the little theater? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Um, so I go and the show gets over. And Michael B. Jordan comes out. Denai Guerrero comes out. Oh, shit. Comes out, and I'm like in the fifth row. And I, you are actually speaking to my ghost. My ghost is on the podcast right now because, <laughs> I, because I passed away. Um, so we had a meet and greet. And so I was like, I'm going to this meet and greet. And we were waiting at the steakhouse that's like near that theater. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as we were going in, I felt like a looming, like tall figure behind me. And I turned around and it was Chadwick. And I was like, oh my God. And I just looked at him like three times. And I was like, oh, like drama. I don't know yes. why I was doing so much breathing and so much like looking, looking back, looking, looking back. And I was like, oh, can I get a picture? And he like put his hand on my shoulder and we took a picture. So in Morgan fashion, I didn't like that picture. <laughs> I didn't think it looked good. So I immediately after he leaves, I'm like, um, I got to go back over there and talk to him because this is not good. Like, I don't want to remember at this moment. Yeah. Like me looking shocked and him looking shocked and we both shocked. So I made my rounds and I went and met Michael B. Jordan and he seemed cool. Like he seemed just very like methodical, which I'm like, you know, one day maybe this interview will catch up to me and, you know, I'll have met him and he'll be like, you was talking trash. And I'll be like, yeah, I was talking trash. I was talking compost on you. But he seems so like far removed 
from the energy that I personally feel is required when you do community, um, it, it, integrity field work. You yes. have to expect people to want to meet you. You have to expect people to want to connect. You have to expect those things because you are a part of something that's bigger. You know, like that's yeah. what you have to expect. So I just remember seeing Chadwick again and I walked over and there are all these like little white kids, you know, like Black Panther, like me, me, me. And I was like, "Mm -mm, this is my, this is our moment. Cause there also weren't a lot of black people, which like Mm -hmm. we can get into that at some point about how when things become global, the people that is for, it becomes less accessible to those people, which is why like all those little Jimmy, which Jimmy is it that be trying to rap? Fallon? Uh, yes. Jimmy Fallon? With, with the roots, yeah. Yeah. That's why, like, all the extra things he did with, like, Jimmy Fallon and going to the children's hospitals, like, that's when the people of his community, even Chance was saying he bought out a few theaters and Chadwick came down to meet the people. Like, that's when the people in the community actually got to have accessibility to him. And it's really sad that it's like, you know, when things become big, then white people start consuming it because they have the money to go see it. Like Hamilton, like they have the money to go see it. They have the money to go do meet and greets. They have the money to go do auctions and all of these things. And it's like, right. But who who are you claiming this is for? And why don't they have accessibility and proximity to the people that are giving out this quote unquote representation? So. I went back up to Chadwick. I took a picture for my friend. I took his picture with Chadwick. And then I went next to Chadwick. And he stops and he looks at me. And he's like, uh, didn't we already take a picture together? And I was like, yeah, but I didn't like it. <laughs> so I came back. <laughs> and he was like, okay. So we took the picture. And then he said the sweetest, kindest thing to me. And he was, and he took my hand and he looked at me. And he was like, yeah, because I remember you. And I was like, what? And he was like, I remember you. Like, who could forget you? And I was like, I literally broke down. I like literally broke. Like, mm. English, like body signals. I feel like I started like cutting in my brain, just cutting. Because I looked at him and I was like, what is, what did he just say to me? And I just looked at him and I don't, I still to this day don't fully understand like what he was trying to say or what, you know, that was supposed to mean. But it was like in that time, it wasn't a rush interaction. It felt like he was imparting something in me. Cause I, I thinking back, I was kind of bold. I was like, I didn't like our picture. So I came back to get another picture because I don't want to forget this moment. And I think maybe that's why his passing has like not been good to me and to a lot of people because he's felt so near. He's mm-hmm. felt like a cousin, you know, that's out here, out there, that was out there doing their thing. They're going to come back when they got time. And it's like, it is possible to pursue a career and to have integrity. It is possible yeah. to not lose yourself. It is possible to advocate for people while people uplift you. You can always do interviews and go, and I want to plug this, you know, 
this organization and I'm going to match. You know, you can do that. And it's disheartening watching this horde mentality that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. Everyone's just grabbing, 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 grabbing at jobs and gigs and trying to climb this mountain. And it's like, yeah, when you die, no one's going to remember you because mm. you mm. don't do anything for anybody else. You don't care about anybody else but yourself. You can't take your Chase bank account with you. Mm. You can't take your IMDB, whatever, IDBD credits with you. But who did you feed that was hungry? And who did you clothe when they didn't have, you know, this whole period of people not knowing where money is coming from? It's like, I hope people realize how quick you can be homeless, how quick Mm -hmm. you can be in poverty. When you run from people on the trains and run from people in your gentrified neighborhood, I hope you remember. And that I don't know how I got all the way to all the way to here, but it, it, it has absolutely infuriated me to watch people go a 180, you know, from being, you know, covert racist and people like mm-hmm. to deal with racism as if it's like the end of Mario Kart, like going to Peach's Castle. Oh, it ain't shit. that far away. No. It ain't a far away land, boo. It's at your mailbox. And it's and it's what you do at your job. It's who you speak over. It's who you go and have meetings about when they don't know you're talking about them. It's how you are willing to sacrifice the people around you for a bag of silver. It is about that. And we can't move forward until everybody decides that my friend is more important than a glimpse and a breath at power because it is simply that a breath. Amen. One million percent. That is so profoundly stated. This is actually a perfect segue for something that I I was mentioning to you that has been very disheartening in terms of what the fuck is happening with people right now. And this is where it's insidious. People we love Mm. being so adverse to facts right Mm. now during a time when in less than 60-ish days, well, 60-ish, actually, no, barely 60-ish days by the time this comes out, where we can actually make an actionable step to steer the ship, yet there are people within all of our own lives who don't want to hear it. And so what that has led me to look into is cult mentality, which I know sounds crazy, but I don't think it is. And if I may, lovely people, I'd like to read to you a little something. I'm not going to read you all 20, but I'm going to give you some highlights. So this is fact-checked, only in the sense that someone who studies this. So Rick Ross is an expert consultant and intervention specialist. So these are his methodical thoughts on Cult mentality. So 10 warning signs of a potentially unsafe group or leader. Number one, absolute authoritarianism without meaningful accountability. Two, no tolerance for questions or critical inquiry. Three, no meaningful financial disclosure regarding budget expenses, such as an independently audited financial statement. Hello. Okay, uh, let's cut to some others. Uh, Nine, the group leader is always right. Ten, the group leader is the exclusive means of knowing truth or receiving validation. No other process of discovery is really acceptable or credible. Okay, you can go in and and actually what I'll do, kids, because like I said, Uncle Aaron pays for this shit. If you follow the Instagram and you actually click the goddamn picture, 
it actually links you to things. Okay. I thought you were into that. So let me let me know if let me know if I should be paying for that. Um, all right. So life is not free. Let's move on to 10 warning signs regarding people involved with a potentially unsafe group leader. Okay. One, extreme obsessiveness regarding the group leader, resulting in an exclusion of almost every particular consideration. Two, individual identity. The group, the leader, and or quote, end quote, God as distinct and separate categories of existence become increasingly blurred. Instead, in the follower's mind, these identities become substantially and increasingly fused as the person's involvement with the group leader continues and deepens. Let's read all this. Three, whenever the group leader is criticized or or questioned, it is characterized as persecution. Four, uncharacteristically stilted and seemingly programmed conversations and mannerisms, cloning of the group leader in personal behavior. Five, dependency upon the group leader for problem-solving solutions and definitions without meaningful, reflective thought. A seeming inability to think independently or analyze situations without group leader involvement. Six, hyperactivity centered on the group leader agenda, which seems to supersede any personal goals or individual interests. Seven, dramatic loss of spontaneity and a sense of humor. I mean, eight, increasing isolation from family and old friends unless they demonstrate an interest in the group leader. Nine, anything the group leader does can be justified no matter how harsh or harmful. Ten, former followers are at best considered negative or worse, evil and under bad influences. They cannot be trusted and personal contact is avoided. Yo. Yo. I mean, this is deep, okay? Like, I never thought in all my days that I'd be like, hey, let's talk about politics on a microphone. I mean, one should, but what's happening here as artists, and this is where I'm interested with our point of view of this shit, and I've said this over and over again on this fucking podcast, is that as artists, what do we do when we get a character, right? We look at that shit, we break it down, we try to figure out like what their motivations are, we try to like try to, even if it's a bad person, we want to figure out like what the situation is. So if we were to look at this as a character study, what's happening here to a collective group of people, and tragically, everyone has been affected by someone they love being part of this problem, is that this is dark. This is deeper than politics. There is literally some kind of fusion and detachment from fucking reality that is happening to people right now in the last four years that now is coming to a head with the possibility of people who believe in this current administration fearing that it won't continue to move forward because they fucking think this person and their administration is doing everything right. Where I'm taken aback is how anyone that is, one, a woman, period, any race, right? But two, how any any non-white American could fucking possibly be on board with this current administration, to me, can only be justified by a psychological disconnect that seems to be tethered to warning signs of cult mentality. Mm-hmm. It's also like, it's also about individualism. Mm. The idea that, it, it, and this is something that I wish would have been more looked at when we did Moby Dick, because it's interesting because Moby Dick 
is like the way that they did AART is like this, this metaphor for actually what we're talking about. You have this ship of people of color, you know, skin folk, and the captain of this ship is white. Mm. Obviously in the book, that's not the case, you know, right. majority of everyone on that ship was, was white, but everybody is in pursuit of pleasing this captain or going after this, the bloom, right? So there, there are levels and intersections in which people feel that they could possibly benefit from a Trumpian presidency or, or dictatorship, right? Mm-hmm. I'm a Christian. So we relate on Christianity. I am a very educated person. So we relate on education. A lot of people feel like they can, they can buy their way in with just a fraction of their existence. Yes. Excluding other parts. That's why I feel like I'm probably going to get stomped on my foot for saying this, but I believe that white cis gay men are very dangerous. They are very dangerous. I have found myself being told that my experiences are not, do not compare to what, you know, a white gay man goes through. And, and then I say to, to that voice, well, either there's no oppression or there are levels to it. So what you can't do is say to me, hey, I am a white gay man, so I have it worse because I, you know, I'm gay. But then I say, hey, so what about the other people that exist in your community who are poor, who are black? who are trans, who are non-binary, who are literally getting murdered by the police. Ignore me if you like, but then you can't exclude the, the most vulnerable ones in your own community. What's so basic about that in terms of why I think there is exclusion, and by the way, this goes for gay men in general, but in particular, is the straight-up attraction level. It's like if you are not considered to be sexually desirable, you are an other thought. And I feel that that's where a lot of those exclusions are actually based on. They come from a place of a much more shallow pool of thought of like, well, I'm not attracted to this type of person or this type of person or this type of person. So their real-life oppression doesn't really have any bearing on me because I'm not in a relationship with them. And right. the ones that I do associate with on a certain level, I am either attracted to physically and sexually or attracted to them as a person, how they fill out my social circle and offer within my own little bubble, a little pod of diversity. Now, this isn't also to say to demonize all white gay men uh, you know, you know, and I know that's not what you're saying at all. So that anyone that's listening, because you know this is a theater podcast, so I'm sure some of you queens right now are listening are like, <gasps> you know, and I get it, I get it. So the truth of the matter is, if you're pissed about what we're saying, you're probably part of the problem. And if you're shaking your head in agreeance, then guess what, babe, you're not. So welcome. But it's interesting in that sense because I can say, as just ethnic enough for these fucking boys, the way I have been treated by a certain demographic of gay men just as a human being, is fucking astounding. I can't believe it. The man I'm, I'm with right now cannot believe the shit that has been said to me by gay, cisgender, white men. 
He's like, what? Mm -hmm. Why would anyone talk to you like that? Which is already a level of supremacy and superiority. Do you know what I mean? And then everyone feeling like they have to be part of it. But the root of that, that I guess I'm, I'm jumping off with you is I'm agreeing, but it's interesting because it's based in sexual attraction. For me, when I, when I contribute to these conversations about breaking down, you know, class and ableism, just breaking down all these things, I am someone that can admit the privileges that I have. Yes. You know I, what say, I, mean? I identify. Yes, 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 yes. I can say that I know I'm not a dark skinned black woman. I can say that I know I am a smaller, petite black woman. I understand that those are things that I benefit from. But I also don't weaponize those things. And I also think that, you know, there's there's a difference between benefiting and weaponizing and also understanding that when you create space or when you're in a space, I would never speak about any other black woman in a room with me, which is very rare that it's more than two or three of us. I would never speak about issues I have with them in mixed company because the reality is. What we're asking non-white people that support Donald Trump is we're saying, please get out of survival mode. Yes. Survival mode is what you do when you are willing to do whatever it takes you think to survive. And you are sometimes and oftentimes relinquishing the full value of what life can be by saying, oh, I'll just take these little pieces of crumbs. Because at least I know I'll have something on my plate versus like, boo, let's go get it because we can all get a loaf. Like, why are, we, why are you taking crumbs from this, from this man who is just a very small, loud reflection of what has always been going on? Yes. It's people sitting behind tables yep. asking you to be more black that voted for him. Yep. And they'll never say it and you'll never know. There's people writing your checks in your imaginative progressive you know theaters that voted for him and you'll never know or they'll never say it because they'll never denounce him and that's why silence is also a choice what you choose to not denounce is sometimes a choice to support what oh my god yes 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 and to that point i think a lot of it is tethered and i've touched on this in prior episodes to the danger for everyone, but let's focus on this. Let me focus on, actually, let me focus on, on, on the Mexican Catholic community. Now, there, granted, there are a lot of people in the demographic that are above me, Generation X, who have seen the light and were like, this dude is racist. He's got all the kids in cages. Like, he has demonized Mexicans in particular. Which, you know, the second that happens... Every non-white person needs to have ears up because that train is never late, okay? Um, right. It's like, oh, the Mexicans are, are animals. I'm like, the second that happened, I was like, Bambi's mom in the forest. I was like, boop. I was like, well, everyone else is next because that train is never, never late. Because if you're going to, if you're going to, it's just, let, mm, mm. <laughs> and, and here we are, right? Because he did that shit immediately, immediately, yeah. immediately in office, demonizing Mexicans. Uh, okay. And that's, I knew, I mean, I knew we were fucked, but I just, I was like, oh, it is, it is a wrap. Rolled back the environmental shit and then started demonizing Mexicans. I'm like, damn, 
Really? Ozone layer first? Now all the fucking Mexicans? Okay, fine. Uh, going into that is that the single issue voting, like you said, this like piecing together of a puzzle and, and only using aspects of yourself to make a choice for breadcrumbs is ridiculous because the single issue voters are super dangerous within a faith-based Latin community, right? Because they are pro-life. I'm not going to speak to that choice, which is your thing. You can believe whatever the fuck you want to believe. I believe in democracy, so I'm not going to tell you what the fuck to think. However, to be someone in your heart that is ultimately against fascism, dictatorship, and racism, but to still vote on a single issue because you think that's your moral compass is fucking hypocritical. It lacks critical thinking, and it is deeply, deeply flawed because to believe in life is to believe in all life. And to be part of that equation right now is actually the antithesis of someone who believes that everyone has a right to live. Because you're all we're surrounded by with though. right now... What'd you say? I said, you're speaking with logic though right now. So that's... Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. But there, you, but that's the thing I'm saying is like, that's where that cult mentality shit is very odd how there's been like this ASMR like... just. But you know what's the Jerry Falwell thing is whatever his name is. It's funny, right? Because people want to dictate what you do while they secretly do whatever they want to do. You know what I mean? Yes. I, I know people who are like diehard Republicans, you know, which are like pro-life people. Like that's that's what they what they be on. And and they have terminated pregnancies. But you'd never know. Right. But it's also like, I don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> telling other people what they can or cannot do. You will never go wrong when you choose love. You will never go wrong when you choose freedom. You will never go wrong when you choose those things and, and, and vote and amplify people who are saying life is too, is too hard to just try to prescribe one thing. We all out here a la carte in life and trying to figure out what we need every single day. So to try to try to say this is what life is, this is how it should be, is it, just a it's a, it's a it's a false representation of actually what life life does. I never thought I would be doing what I'm doing right now. I was going to go be a professor, you know, but life changed. So I had to have the fluidity and flexibility to ebb and flow with what life does. None of us thought We'll be sitting up at the house. I mean, nobody thought. All right. And the the biggest thing that is heartbreaking to me, but I have to believe in hope. I really, I'm a proponent for it. It, It's what I live on. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is the thing that is most maddening for me, and I'm sure many of you will identify with this, hopefully, is that the people we know in our life who are behaving this way at their core, because we know them and love them, we know they're not bad people. So that's where bringing it all back in, and I'm sure everyone's like, damn, this bitch is talking about cults. I had to, as a director, figure out what is happening to these characters psychologically. There has to be something else happening here, because we're all imperfect. We all do terrible things. We all do good things. That's what makes life interesting. And that's what we do as artists, is we, in a good piece, inhabit complicated people, reflect that shit to you on stage or on screen or in your ears, and then you feel like you're fucking not alone when we're having a good day. And we're like, yeah, yeah, we're here to be like a mirror. So 
it's something that I have no answers for, but I'm hoping that we get out of this kerfuffle and are able to unpack that once everyone's kind of died down. Because the alternative, the way it could go, is something I frankly can't even dwell in right now because it's just too much anxiety. It's too much anxiety. As it is, I'm already having a lot of anxiety issues like where I can feel it. And it's just that it's that tension of anxiety. So I'm going to live in hope that if things go the way they are and everyone gets a moment to sort of like breathe, that we can unpack this shit with the people we love and like figure out like what is the root of this characters. And obviously they're not characters. They're people we love, family, dot, 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 friends, colleagues. What what was your motivation in that moment in this part of the story? Like what was really going on there? Generally, what I find that's going on there is fear. And and self-hate. You yes. know, when I was when I was in school, one of my professors, my accent is awful. And he was not um he was a white man. But he used to tell us when we were playing characters. That we have to play your everything. accents. Sorry, your accents were awful. They are awful, but I'm probably going to butcher this when I say it. But he <laughs> said everything should be por las buenas. Mm-hmm. And I used to be like, huh? And he would be, you know, if you're playing, God forbid, a, a dictator, you have to find a way to justify why they think what they're doing is good. Yes. Don't play at them and don't comment while you are inhabiting them. That's why, like, you know, when I watched Game of Thrones, I binged it last summer. (laughs) And I I really waited for the wrong time to binge. But there was something about watching all of these houses, you know, fight to protect their legacies and resources and, you know, bloodlines and et cetera, et cetera. And I really do think that the show missed an opportunity to justify beyond just like, we're white people and this is our castle and you're white and this is their castle beyond the like Dothraki, which I don't even want to get into that. But like, there was something about Cersei where I'm like, if that family was dark, like very, very dark, I don't think so much of the bloodshed and very convicted defense of the throne and the land would have sat as bad with me as it did. Hmm. Because we know and see darker-skinned people have very little resources, have very little uh, economic pool, Rarely do we know. I mean, I can't really name any darker people who are not villainized that have uh, power in the world. I mean, it's what like Kim Jong Un and like he cray. I can't count on my hands and toes. My knowledge of people that are darker that are in power who are then also not villainized. Mm. So this idea that. What Donald Trump is doing is protecting the system that allowed him to live his life in a mediocre fashion and still be successful. And wouldn't we all want to protect that if we had it? So when I look at him and I look at his followers, and this is my education hat coming on. Mm -hmm. 
when I think of the way I wrap my head around it, there are many white people who live their lives never having encountered a non-white person, but there are very few non-white people who have lived their lives not having encountered a white person. They can live their lives without us, but we can't live our lives without encountering them in a hierarchical form. You know what I mean? Like, I had very few teachers that were black. And when I did, there was very, very little explanation I ever had to give when it came to grief, when it came to class load or just being an actual non-mule like human being. I didn't have to explain as much to the people that looked like me, especially the black women. Like they were like, go home. They were like, yo, your uh, group mate did what? They knew the crocodile tears before they came. They knew the plotting and the games that people played. Why? Because they lived through them. So when you look at our education system and you look at the current state of the world, how can anybody be surprised that it is the way that it is? Everything we teach, everything we indoctrinate people with validates everything that is happening right now. We are our education system is nationalism. Nobody leaves <laughs> high school being like, I hate America. Nope. Nobody. Sure don't. When the day Donald Trump got elected, I was teaching a dream yard in the Bronx. Um, and I was having such a hard time with my class. Um, a lot of them were um, English was their second language. And I just wanted to teach them music and just deconstruct how every music form we we have come to know has started with us. Mm-hmm. It started with us. Maybe it's transformed into something else, but it has started with us, like taking ownership of sounds and creativity and just the the freedom in, in pushing the boundaries that black and brown people have done because we literally have nothing to lose. <laughs> like we literally don't have <laughs> when it comes to expressing ourselves. Like what yeah. do we have to lose but to make that sound and make that that art and that expression? And I have been having a really hard time with my class and there was one white teacher who could like walk in the room and they would sit up straight. And it had, was really starting to bother me just to watch the the immediate respect and assumption of this. I don't want this person to be upset. I don't, I, this person could get me in trouble. The just immediate respect that I didn't get. And I remember one day in class, we were talking about slavery and, you know, just, just the idea of property. Because people don't really grasp what that means, like property. And I was in class and nobody was listening and paying attention. And I literally picked up a desk and I threw it. Well. And they were like, what are you doing? And I said, "It's it's just a piece of property. What do you mean? What am I doing? It's a piece of property. Now, what if that had been your body? You would do that to me if you were my slave, I would. Why wouldn't I? And it caught their attention. And it was like, why do I was like, why do I have to get to this point? Why do why do we have to get to this point where we gotta start getting thrown around to be like, oh, there we go. That that's what that means. And the day Trump got elected, I always had to go through Columbus Circle to mm-hmm. like get to the Bronx. And I just remember looking at Trump Tower and being like, Ugh. and I went to work and I had no lesson plan. 
I was like, I'm not doing anything today. Um, these it, was kids, day, it was morning. Morning. It was awful. Yeah. And the kids walked in and they just stared at me. And one kid, one of my problem kids, went, "Miss, are me and my parents getting deported?" <sighs> and I looked at them, and I said. I don't know. I don't know what is happening, what's going to, I don't know. But let this be a moment for you that I came in this classroom and I had no expectation of us doing anything but breathing. To expect you to use your brains today, to expect you to think and try to learn, where all of that stuff seems so inconsequential to just like, surviving right now and this white teacher walks in and you give him all the respect because he's a white person you will never see this many black people standing in front of the classroom for you ever again when you go to college you will not see us unless you go to a historically black college or a, a, a school in a predominantly black or brown you know community you won't see these many people so when people work on individualism and are willing to excuse a part of themselves to get just a little piece, the day always comes when they realize what they don't have. You will find that day. You will see that day. Look at freaking Herman Cain. They out oh. here tweeting from the dead for him. And that man had a whole Republican National Convention and never once did an in memoriam for you. While you walked out and put your life on the line for him. And that's what I mean by individualism. The, the perception of progress, the perception of protection when you are a pawn and you will always be a pawn. And that's not to relinquish the responsibility of the Democratic Party. Mm -mm. They have some debts to pay. Yeah. Don't expect black people, and I'm going to say something, and people will be like, oh, you're canceled, and that's fine, because ain't nobody working right now. They have debts to pay, and it irks me to my core the expectation that black people must vote for Joe Biden just because he's not Donald Trump. Joe Biden must be what black people deserve. Mm -hmm. You must be what brown people deserve. Yep. Because the reality is y'all been getting by on our boats and y'all blanketed promises forever. And we haven't seen an ounce of the promises and dedication to change and dismantling that we have been owed. Quit bringing up Martin Luther King. Let him rest in peace. And that's the reality. Now, I'm not saying I'm not going to vote. I'm not saying those things. But a lot of people have such an ease at one telling black people what they should be doing when black people have always been on the right side of history. Go talk to your auntie in Mississippi. Shit. My aunties look like Maxine Waters. Hello. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. the, the, the issue at hand is like blaming people who might not vote for Joe Biden, who are upset at Joe Biden, and not actually the real issue is, why is anybody voting for Donald Trump? 
And we will never get to the progress of this country if we keep deflecting the real work. And the real work is how was anybody in this country supporting him? Yes, I understand. Like I said, education is 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 re is validating these skewed beliefs. You know, there's so many facets of growing up and living in America where it reconfirms they're they're criminals. They don't work hard. They're this. Mm -hmm. they're that. I understand all of those things. But the real work is look at the people who are supporting him. What systems are convicting them throughout life to feel this way? Yes. Those are the systems that need to be dismantled. Yes. I don't know how we got here, but it, it, I'm really convicted in this. And this idea that the real work is in the people that are supporting the races, not yelling at the people who want to see change in their lifetime. They want to see change in their lifetime. And that requires Joe Biden and Kamala feeling the pressure of not getting something just because they're not somebody else. Because yeah. we've seen people sit in the White House. You know, I'm a little mad at Barack Obama. You know, I was like 18, 17 when he became president. I did my duty. I was excited. But I am not interested in visible representation anymore. Mm. I don't care what you look like. I don't care how you identify. What's your rhetoric? What's your pedagogy? How do you walk through life? How do you view yourself through life? That's what's going to bring change. And that's not to say a white person can't bring change. I think everyone is misconstruing that it's like yeah. we brown people here and black people here. Yes. And yes. there's also some white people who have been on the right side and look where they've gotten. They ain't probably ain't got that far either. <laughs> exactly. What? You know? it's, yes, exactly. And it's interesting. The analogy that we were talking about when all the shit was going down with like within our own industry that I, I had with a, a good friend of mine, we were talking about. I'm only going to bring it back to this circle of us is that no, the point isn't that there shouldn't be any white people on stage. The truth is we actually want everyone on right. stage. But the thing is you have proven to us that you don't, you don't right. with factual numbers. That is not your desire. That's all. I think any of us who are leading some from some fucking place of love and freedom, like you said, that's the only desire I have. I want everyone to be involved. And so the demonizing of white people is actually not the thesis of any of these conversations. <laughs> it shouldn't be. No, it because shouldn't you know be. What? Yeah. I'm, I'm going to say, and, I, and I've been observing this and it's been absolutely frustrating. And I think we talked briefly about this is this idea that either the industry is exclusive and the best of us and the, and some of the most innovative of us, not to say the people that haven't found success inside of it are not uh, worthy of the success they found or not talented or not creative, but we can't then m make this justification of people are being left out. People have not been excluded. You know, I'm on my 50th Broadway show and I'm not making as much as, you know, was somebody from Little Foxes, whatever them shows, you know, you have to decide which one it's going to be. Either the best have been left out or the best are in and they just want more. Mm. I would be willing to take a pay cut if it meant two more people get a slot. Are you willing to take a pay cut? Are you willing to go get on the train and get off at Essex to go do a show at, you know, at wherever? Are you willing to do that? 
or are you just upset that the problem is there's a lot of people yelling about gatekeeping and while they're yelling, they building a little gate behind them. And God so they're damn. saying, now you got to come, now you got to come through my gate to get to that gate. And the reality is we as a community needed to have our own conversations because I've been hurt by people that look like me. You know, I've been hurt by people that claim they want change. And and for me, Aaron, like the reality is, is I'm not interested in people that want to blame institutions reflectively. Yeah. I want to know when you came up against this system that presently claims it is evaluating itself, that system needs the information of how they respond to correction. That's the information they need. The information of pre all of this conversation about BIPOC and this and this and this. No, no, no. When it wasn't hot, when it wasn't performative and you acted against me in a nuanced way. And I came up to you as someone who before the conversation was a great artist and, an, and you know, an integrity filled artist. And I came to you and I said, hey, there's a lot of dangerous stuff happening in this moment. Was I gaslit? Did you try to smear me? What was your response to that? Because we can't tear down systems and then not replace them with anything. What's going to go inside of this space? And I refuse to tear anything down just so, you know, somebody else now is, is at the top of the mountain calling the shots. That's not what it's about. And that goes back to that hoarding conversation. And I feel like I told my mom and my dad, I feel like when Donald Trump says that he is here for the American worker, that he's actually telling the truth. He does want you to go work in a factory. He wants you to go do coal. He sure. wants you to go do those labor jobs. What he's doing is protecting your ability to climb the economic ladder. He is actually making more space between those that have access to wealth and those that can just get by. He's not lying. He's telling the truth. He does want you to have your factory job. He doesn't mm -hmm. want you to make enough money where you can buy a few homes and have property for your kids or, you know, people in your family or your community. He doesn't want you to be able to put money away and start a business. He wants you to work just enough that you can live and put food on the table. He yes. wants to tear down this idea. He actually wants to destroy, quote unquote, the American dream. And I say to him this, that is fine. But what you will do is you will give reparations. <clears throat> you will pay back. The access you've had, white sir, is because people did free labor. Because you, this country committed genocide. You cannot talk about the access you've had without talking about all the free things you've acquired. It's like they won't skip a few pages. You know, and even when black people and you know, and I don't like to speak for other communities, even with black people, when they were denied these things, they still found a way to spin it. And that's why people don't want to talk about Tulsa and Rosewood. They don't want to talk about those things. They don't want to talk about the reconstruction era. No. They don't want to talk about because to understand those things are to understand the police or to understand why we had to be in before the streetlights came on or to understand all of those things. I get frustrated because I'm like, my grandfather fought in the war. My great, great, great grandparents, you know, were slaves. This was not some like, like I said, fairy tale land at the end of Mario Kart when you go to Peach's Castle. 
No, 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 no. These are accessible things. These are not 700, 800, 900 years ago. Yes. It's very fresh and very new. So please tell me, like, I was reading Pocahontas about Pocahontas' story the other day. And and then I made the mistake of watching Pocahontas too, just to see how, you know, messed up it was. <sighs> and I was absolutely disgusted at the way that they took the customs of these people and their ability to use crops and do tobacco. And like, they didn't compensate them for teaching them those traits. They went, oh, cool. I'm going to kill y'all. And then now we're going to sell this stuff. And literally spread diseases that had never hit the the land that they lived on before. Literally spread. I used to talk to a Lakota Indian and he said that when people would come to America and they would ask whose land this is, Native peoples would say it's nobody's because nobody could own the land. Yes. And people would take that as, oh, cool. Well, I'm just... This gonna be ours. It's like Eddie Izzard's whole joke when he was like, "Do you have a flag?" <laughs> <laughs> People would show up. Oh, do you have a, oh, you don't have a flag? Okay. Oh, it's exhausting because you see the the hypocrisy of like, you know, marginalized people doing what colonized, you know, colonial people felt the need to do to get their independence, and they're like, "No, you can't." Burn, you can't. And I watched the Patriot the other day and I was like, they just literally burned an effigy. Like, that's a word, right? Effigy. Yeah, literally yeah. burned an effigy, like from a building, pouring tea, pouring, you know, burning stuff down. You know, as Spike Lee said the other day on CNN, he was like, the first person to die for America was Crispus Attucks, a black man. And people do not want to talk and think about the ways that black and brown people have fought for the advancement of this country only to come home to find out this country does not want them to advance. Exactly. Okay. On that note, we are going to take a much needed break. Uh, I don't know if any of you kids have experienced this yet, but we, we take a, a meditation break where we're going to recalibrate for one minute. feels like we can use it. So everyone get cozy wherever you are. My suggestion to you, because it's about to get real ASMR up in here, is put on a pair of headphones and just get ready to sit somewhere and breathe. Okay? All right. Let's recalibrate. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Aaron, your host and producer of the show. So there's a lot happening right now in the world. And rather than take a moment to have a commercial, I thought it would be nice for us to take a moment and recalibrate. How does that sound? Excellent. Okay, so get comfortable, and we're going to take a deep breath in, and a deep breath out. Deep breath in, and just let it out. 
All right. Now close your eyes and breathe normally. Perfect. I hope you feel a little better now. And just remember, you are perfect. And you are loved. Okay. Let's get back to the show. Everyone's feeling nice and cozy. You got a little moment to meditate. Morgan and I are are just setting these houses on fire. So let, let's let's keep talking. Let's keep talking. All you lovely people listening, still out there in the dark. Um, okay. So one thing about you, Morgan, that I'm super fascinated by is this Bachelor of Science. Yeah. Most people just assume that like. If you're a theater person, like you got a BA or a BFA and not me, I got a BS. And yeah. my parents, so for a long time, I was convinced I was going to be like an anesthesiologist or a nurse mm. anesthetist. I was like convinced of that. And then I was a biology major for literally 37 hours. <laughs> like probably in- that's time is like actually 37 hours. And you just were like, you knew immediately. You're like, no, 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 no. They started talking about skin and like the bugs in your skin. And I was like, yep, I had a weave at the time. So I was like itching. So I was like, this is not, this ain't it for me. Not that I can't do it, but I'm like, this is day one. And they already talking about bugs. Mm -mm." So I got out of there and became a full-time theater student. And I had a minor in marketing as well, which I would urge any artistic person to like get marketing or because theater schools do not teach that you are a entity you are a business yes like you are 
And that's not to say it won't change over time that, you know, I've, I've morphed and grown and, you know, what, what I supply as a good has changed, but I am still the business. Yes. You know, we'll talk about that in another episode. So everyone, by the way, the format of the show, if you're just tuning in because you love her, which I'm glad, get cozy because we hang out for a month so that we can actually talk about some real shit here. So I'd love to actually talk about that with you because it's something I think in the arts, I'm always taken aback when someone's like, I'm really not good at the business side of things. I'm like, what? No, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with that because we're artists, but it's a business, yo. And if you're going to be part of it, it would behoove of you to learn a little bit, even online. Anyway, please continue with your thought. Well, like I said, I was pretty much told you have to have some other type of education additive to theater. And I'm really glad that I did marketing. Um, I didn't really like it that much, but it was mm-hmm. really important to understand just the business side of things. And, you know, my, my undergraduate undergraduate career was very interesting. Um, I was one of the few freshmen that was in a main stage show. I did a main stage show every semester with the exception of my spring senior year because I was focused on competitive speaking, which mm. I started doing my junior year of college. And I actually won that year after doing it. It was slight flex, slight flex. I won after competing for only two years. And a lot of people do it in middle school. Um, but it was the first time that I really was dedicated to reading literature, which is wild. Because it's like, yo, theater people don't really read plays. Um, especially the important ones. The stuff. Uh, <sighs> Thank you, I for, mean, I, thank you for saying that. Thank you for saying that. It's wild because it's like when I did speech, the way that the performance, they, they call it interp, the in, in, interp sections worked, is that you had to give an argument as to why this speech is relevant and necessary, um, which I feel like the theater world needs more of. Like, why are we doing the 700s revival of like, Follies or something, you know, like why do we yeah. do this right now? Why is this important? Why is this necessary? And sometimes the answer is we don't. We just feel like doing it, and it's like great, thank you for the honesty. Yeah, yeah. for just saying we just because we can. Yeah. <laughs> so it really like forced me to just be present and read stuff that I probably never would have read read or analyze stuff that I've read before and understand how those pieces can fit together. Um, and school, like I said, school was interesting. I was the person in class that I feel like they didn't know what to do with. So like all the other girls in class were doing, you know, Juliet and Isabella and all these things. And I was like out spot, you know? Yeah. Like I am small. <laughs> and it wasn't until I got to New York that I realized I had like an ingenue face. Everyone was like, you have such a round little face. Like you're such a little smushy smush. And I was like, um, I'll be out here, Lady Macbeth then. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never been treated as someone who could possibly be on the receiving end of love in a piece wow. or, you know, someone in pursuit of love, which I think 
it all worked in my favor because when I approach these ingenue characters, you know, it's not in your eyes. Juliet is not in the eyes. Juliet is in the gut. Yes. You know, and and teens are not stupid people. They may go no. after things that we're like, oh, why do they want to go after that? But they're very valiant in their efforts. She's convicted yes. in Romeo. I want him. You know, it's yeah. like, I want him. Like, no, it's I want. Yes. And I feel like, you know, helping my graduate program where my one of my thesis, my first year was the perception of sound. And so I had my classmates listen to different um, performers singing. And I said, now tell me their race. What do you think they what do you think they look like? Um, and, and why do we accept or why do we attribute certain sounds to certain looks? And I, I had them un- unpack that. And even my, my final thesis was the effects the Chitlin circuit have had on, oh my God, what did I call it? What is a nat- naturalism in black? Mm-hmm. Why don't we believe I like to call it that black people just like run out of groceries. Like, why can't that be the conflict of the day in this? Why does it have to be this hyper huge dramatization of like life? And why don't we believe that black vessels, anything that comes out of them is black. And how has the Chitlin circuit impacted the way that black people view themselves? Um, theatrically um and it was interesting you know the the pedagogy that they had at the school was very beneficial to me I will say that I ended up at Long Island University because all of my teaching jobs kind of just fell through and I had this acceptance to the school and I was like I should just do something instead of sit at home in Illinois and And you got a master's I did I got a I got it's amazing I did and it truly came as someone whose undergraduate experience was very uh, naturalistic, was very just, it's as if this, you know, just my, just very simplistic, the, 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 the psyche of playing someone. The pedagogy in grad school was very physical. Okay. And I found myself as someone who has. I don't want to say disconnected. I don't know the the real word for it, but really didn't have the opportunity to deal with a lot of grief that I'm presently unpacking that now, especially just having been a black woman in school. When I was a sophomore, I got cast as Ariel in The Tempest. All right. And we trained in London for a month at the Globe and all this stuff. And we were in a Shakespeare festival with two other universities in Illinois. We all had the same set. So we just traveled to each other's campuses every weekend, knowing that we had the same set at our campus. And we would tech for the day, just little slight changes if anything was different. And then we'd have a festival that whole weekend of like three, four Shakespeare shows. Wow. Sophomore. Um, during the spring semester, my grandfather and his brother both got sick uh-huh. and they lived next door to each other. 
um their whole like all the kids grew up yeah. with each other like they just you know the street was like join the street um <laughs> and when i went to london i just remember this heavy like weight of like i can't enjoy myself like someone's going to die someone's going to pass away and yet like all the little white girls were projecting their just a second my dog is has his yes, toy please doing yes his thing. Thank you. In just a second. <laughs> um, all the little, you know, white, all the little white girls in the department were projecting their insecurities of like wanting to participate, you know, wanting to be a part of the project, not understanding fully like what I was battling with interpersonally. Yes. Um, so when I got back, my uncle my great uncle passed away and we went to this church for the funeral. My uncle preached the funeral. My dad did the eulogy. And I just remember I sat next to my granddad Mm -hmm. at the church. And then something about me leaving him to go back to school and rehearse was like, you might not see him again. Um, and then about three, three ish weeks later, he passed away. On the same day that my grandmother, his wife, passed away 13 years prior. Wow. This was all a day before the Tempest was supposed to be on my campus. And a week before the Tempest was going to be up at uh, Western Illinois University. Wow. I remember doing the show that night. Uh, that next day, it just the release of Ariel having freedom from Prospero. Mm-hmm. Like for me, I had to when I used to pray for my grandfather. I used to pray so hard for him to get well, and mm-hmm. then my prayer changed for me to have the strength to let him go if it was his time. Like it changed, you know, over time. Yes. And then I remember the next weekend. I think the most disturbing part of this story is that when I found out he died, I don't remember crying immediately. I remember walking straight into the office, the theater office and saying, hey, my grandfather died. The funeral will probably be next week, which is when the show is happening. I don't know exactly what you guys want to do with this situation. And I remember speaking almost just like how I just said it. Yeah. Yeah. And the PSM was like, wait. You need to pause. And I remember I just, you know, broke down in that moment. Um, And they ended up changing the day of the performance so that I went. I literally went to the funeral and I went home for a couple and I stayed at home for a couple of hours. And then I got in a car and I drove up to Chicago Mm. and I did the show. And also that semester, I remember being told I was put on probation for missing meetings in this volunteer group I was in. Wow. And I don't want to get, you know, super emotional, but the expectations of certain people to persevere through so many trials and tests that other people would just crumble under has really just resonated with me in these these present moments that yes. the education system is a business. Yes. 
it comes to take away everything that's special about you, everything that you could bring that would change the world. So you spend your time learning, actually, in any way possible, tethering yourself with all your strength to your dreams and your goals and the way you want to see the world be. The things that people are like, that doesn't make any sense. That's mm-hmm. that. That's not worth my investment. That's not, no one's going to come and see that. And you find yourself overcoming rather than being inspired by. And I think that that is the thesis of my educational experience, that these were all people I felt like I had to overcome instead of people that poured into me and saw my integrity as something worth investing. They saw it as something they hadn't seen. So therefore, rather than be a teacher or an instructor that steps up and challenges themselves so that they can challenge me or or give me the tools I need, they they cowered and they Mm. made me the aggressor in my own story where I was a victim. Yes. You know, and, and my story has always been, you know, a story of grief and overcoming and persevering and working so hard to have a heart of flesh that justifiably could be of stone if it wanted to be. It could be of stone. But, you know, segueing into like be more chill knowing that I was going to be the visual for someone that needed to see it. I mean, I think that's the beautiful thing about marginalized people is that most of the stuff we've consumed and the characters we cling to are oftentimes people that don't even look like us, but we find their experiences and their charisma relatable because what they're a character. Yes. But something extra special happens when we don't have to imagine ourselves, but we actually get to see it. And it's frustrating when it's like, so what? You know, maybe the next couple of big things are not inhabited by white bodies. And if white people have a problem not seeing themselves, to them I say, welcome. I was just letting that sit in the air. One one million percent. It's interesting. My one of my uh, colleagues, white girl, New York family, British family. She's got a little bit of that both going mm-hmm. on. And she says she's like, everyone's going to have to understand right now. And you know, for a while, is how she feels about it. She's like, we all need to step aside, and no one wants to hear it. But it's really the truth of like going back to what you were saying of like, what are you, the proverbial you willing to do for advancement? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? What are you willing to allow? And this is something that has been on my mind. And we talked a little bit about this just on the phone that there's this notion of like, okay, let's knock this down. So then these people are in charge. And then we just have another kind of interesting hierarchy happening. Right. right? But the truth of the matter is, where does everyone suddenly feel? that all this manifested, fully developed work is going to come from. That's actually not how it goes. You know, there's going to have to be space made available 
for creation and exactly what you were sharing so honestly about not backing away from the uniqueness of the creators you are saying in a performative way you are empowering. Because if all we end up with is a tinted version of your taste level, then what the fuck is the point? Right. Does that make any sense? Yeah. And like what you were saying, you know, there's been a lot of talk about Sondheim. I'm not going to talk shit about Sondheim. That's not what's happening here. Everyone calm the fuck down. But it's like, you know, we all see ourselves in his work, but you don't see yourself. Right. But it does not negate the emotional integrity of the work piercing beyond any aesthetic and touching everyone in theater in their soul. And in a way, it's so intense that I, I dare say we've kind of been like, well, you know, that's just the way it is with him. Yeah. You know? Because the work is so deeply, deeply moving that it, I'm almost, I know me personally, I'm like, well, I'm going to just focus on the way this is making me feel. Uh, and by the way, I, I might cut that. I don't know. I'm not trying to like call him out because it's like, you know, it's like, yeah, let's attack a 90 year old fucking <laughs> composer. You know what I mean? And it's also like the, that motherfucker isn't, he's not, he's not, the, <laughs> he is not the genesis of the problem. Right, like, let's, right. that's a bigger picture. Like, you know, a lot of people want to attack these people. It's like the way people, I don't know where I'm going with this. I don't know how I'm jumping off of your story from this, but it's the way I feel about people wanting to all of a sudden have a lot of shit to talk about Lynn. Which he has said he is willing to validate and say all of you, all of these arguments are totally fucking valid. The conversation is valid. But I'm like, so let me get something straight. All the malarkey ass shit of what I kind of like to, I'm sorry, for some people who are doing the bare ass minimum, everyone's cool with, but the most successful non white Latino to come out of the gate. Ever. Now all you bitches want to like gang up on him? Okay. That's cool. But you know what? But there you has to be tangible conversations beyond the criticism, right? Yes, that's exactly it. There, it, it, it. In what I mean of the tearing down of systems, you have to replace it with something. We must bring something to the table. The issues that I have are sometimes the, the anti-blackness of a thing. You know, I, when I hear Sally Hemings' name, I don't think that that's funny. So I must ask, who was in the room when y'all thought that any type of talk about Sally Hemings was, in, was appropriate? And I know that it just wasn't producers and creatives in there while they were creating that. So, you know, history... While, while I understand the evolution of a thing, while I understand, you know, people give up parts of themselves to take up space and grow. And then they're like, I have agency and now I can do the things I want to do. Sometimes you have to be careful because you cannot erase your history. You cannot erase what you were willing to sacrifice to gain. And sometimes that's where the integrity, integrity lies in. I am happy that people are getting money and being paid because of his creation. 
people that would have never gotten paid, people that would have never gotten seen. I am happy for them. But then I must also say, what are they doing to create space for other people? Are they just taking opportunities? Are they just saying, great, I have made it. Look at me. It's so much easier for me to, to get work now. Or are they going, great, I'm going to start this foundation that, you know, pays for pianists to transpose and make stuff for up and coming young musical theater. Like, what are you doing now with your access? Are you sitting in your throne and going, "Woo, that's great. But you know what? That goes back to me (laughs) talking about people, you know, trying to find their one point of relation to a thing, because there's always going to come a point where the other points of, of, of non-relation come for you. You know, you can't complain about it. I will always say the industry needs to be changed when I have a job, when I don't have a job, when I'm rich, when I wasn't rich. There's always something to be added to make a thing better. And you have to watch when people have the most to say. Is it is it when they don't have? When do they get quiet? Because the silence is also a choice. And. To piggyback off that idea, there's also an audacity, and Jason Vesey and I talked about this, I think more just as humans with each other. There's also the audacity for people to think that the only valid form of theater is fucking Broadway. Yeah. It is a dream. It is part of the mythology. All of us want it. Some of us get there. You've been there. Uh, Actually, everyone on this show so so far, um, have, have for the most part has been have been there, or you work directly in tandem next to it. Do you know what I'm saying? And yes, it's part of our mythology of American theater. You know, it's just it is what it is, and it's and who doesn't who doesn't want that that little camp, right? But the truth is, there's so much fucking work going on in independent circles yeah. and off Broadway, and even deeper than whatever a union wants to call a category there's things happening in other genres and there have actually been people who work for major agencies who have literally called theater that they can't quantify those people and i will i'm sitting on that shit and i i'm just not on me on the show but i've i know the way we are treated often as someone standing here repping for indie theater and even me not even repping for the indie theater that's really super indie theater where there is beautiful, beautiful work being created. And I think that that's where the theater community really to make change. What are you willing to sacrifice as someone who is of color to develop the work? Because the truth of the matter is what's going to have to fucking go down for a hot minute is a lot of us are going to have to figure out how to survive while not really making the cutest paychecks. One, because of the world. And two, if we're really going to dig our heels in and create, creation is scrappy. There is no money. There's no money in creation. But what we have is the value of our intellectual property that is in our brains and our collaborative efforts to gift each other with the value of our time. So we've got to gift each other come together, and also know that there's many roads that lead to success. I mean, most of the the first things I used to do, like when I got into the city, I used to to do shows at people's houses. I did The Misanthrope, and we literally went to a different apartment 
every weekend. Oh, that's cool. Like one time we did it in someone's backyard and like the only set piece was a couch. And we would get there, we spend an hour like fixing just the blocking. And I played two characters <laughs> in it. And it was so fun because it was like, do y'all like art? Or y'all like, you know, you want a, a $5,000 paycheck a week. And I think that that's what's going to change. I read an article about, you know, Broadway is reliant on every single seat being filled. Yep. And that's not going to happen for a while. No. But we're going to find out, you know, this whole talk about accessibility and, you know, representation. The reason why stages are white are because the majority of people that can afford the tickets are white people. Mm. You know, so if we want to change what's reflected, we really have to unpack accessibility into the space. We have to unpack those things. And, you know, there's obvious shows where it's like, you know, that's a jukebox, that's a jukebox. And, you know, but those things are also in just this odd way. They're also highly consumed by the non-culture represented. You know what I mean? White people love black people's music. Yeah. So when you put up a big jukebox, even though there's a whole bunch of black people up there, it's still about the white people that are consuming it. Yes. I'm curious to see if any of these people who are gamillionaires and also have <laughs> access to other gazillionaires, right? Actually put their money with their mouth where their mouth is and start to help dare I say, subsidize the development of new works. And one thing actually that's just occurring to me since everyone's broke as shit right now for the most part, especially people within our own industry, is right now we are all learning how to live on pennies for the most part. Right. So I dare think, do we actually use this time to understand what that means, which is very, very difficult to do, right? And know that if we continue to chase this, what can we scrape by on while we work on things that have integrity and then hopefully catch the eye of some of these well-meaning people with money and see if they actually want to do the damn thing and help? Yeah. Like, are they going to help? And not that I'm saying we need... No, you need money to make shit happen. You do. Period. It is what it is. I'm doing that with my film. Like... When I become a responsible adult <laughs> and I finish it, like I know people that are Broadway producers that, you know, have access to people who, are, you know, make a whole bunch of money. Like what's $200,000 to um, four people that make $6 million a year? Exactly. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't mean anything to them, especially if I say, hey, I am going to employ mostly black people in creating apprenticeship for black people so that they can learn while getting a stipend how to do a task, how to be a part of a film. You know, it's 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 interesting to watch people complain about the lack of dot 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 where they're actually it's actually happening, but it's not happening in the way that we deem valid. Yes. And then until it becomes vouched for by who we claim is a gatekeeper, then it is valid. 
So it's like we must unpack and deprogram what we consider art, what we consider marketable, what we consider is worth our time um, developing and participating in. I go and do readings for friends all the time for free. Sorry, equity. You know, I go and participate in so many things that friends are doing because I want to contribute to the process. And sometimes when we think about theater and we think about compensation, theater really isn't paying too many people what they deserve. There are very few people getting paid, you know, what they deserve. So we have to think about, like, what are we willing? Are we willing to to bunker down and do the thing and provide either one, the example and say, look at this fully developed thing that we've committed 500, 600 hours. We've done the research. These many people will come. Actually, sometimes, you know, speaking about like your immersive work, sometimes the lack of accessibility actually makes a thing more desirable. Yes, exclamation point and underline what you're saying. Yes, I literally live on that theory. Like my last show, it could only be 60 people. That was the gig. We could have done more if we were being, but it just be safe because people are fucking drinking and walking around. Good morning, class. Right. Like I was like, nope, 60 is the cap. And 60 was insane. And the ticket price was at a certain level. It was expensive, but that's how you pay people. And, you know, I didn't have, you know, anyway, I'm not going to justify that shit. Anyway, so that shit makes people come. I mean, look at Then She Fell. Then She Fell just closed after about six years, 4,444 performances, great number to end on. And they only let 12 people in per show. So it was sold out for fucking years. But there is something about that, that the way we, and actually I had a talk with a young producer who I've known since he was quite young and he became a producer where he's like, yeah, but you're not selling out, Aaron. You only have 60 people. I'm like, you think because it's not a traditional proscenium house that this isn't a sold out success? Like that's, that's also another way of thinking. It's like, are we able to create things where we we have to basically think outside the fucking box yeah we we got to get over this notion and i said this in one of the first episodes we have to stop bathing in the and this is funny for you gonna say but trying to bathe in the milk of proscenium theater there are so many fucking ways to create art and i venture to say most of us some of the coolest things you've ever done have been in non-proscenium theater immersive or otherwise yeah you know, like when you work at New Ohio, which is something about your bio that I'm that I'm very impressed with is because you have sh- shown that you have worked on literally a variety of stages and setups and clearly checks that have come through with those organizations. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. It's like everyone forgets that, you know, one of the reasons the public is a labor of love is it's an extraordinary uh, amount of work that's coming out of there, but you know, you're not getting any money off that. Right. So, you know, you're, it, it ultimately too is an investment of time, which we see on occasion really pays the fuck out. However, to go into this chasing money, it's not the gig. It's not, it's not, the, it's not the gig. And the second you release yourself from that, I believe you can actually chase something that eventually one day could be deemed of quote, value to a larger group of people well it's it's the it's the danger of ambiguity you know the minute i unlocked that like i like wearing overalls and sometimes i want to wear a baseball cap the minute i unlocked that and i will go into auditions wearing that 
I am saying to you, this is my vibe. This is what I bring coming to work. And when we're at work, I come to work. I want to bring my best me, my me into the space so that I can best encapsulate the work I've done. I don't want to have an out-of-body experience. I'm going to go in as me and be completely wrong for it, but as myself. Yes. And I think that that goes to what you're saying is this idea that, you know, I tell, and I hate to say young, because, you know, I, I fluctuate between the ages of like 12 and 87, but I talk- <laughs> I try to tell younger people that I feel like are more affected by what they see that you have to spend time with yourself because if you don't, you will literally be shape-shifting and you will find yourself having nothing because you aren't anything and you're trying to be everything. Yeah, there's no uh, structure to your own humanity. There's nothing. There's nothing that roots you. You go in this room and you're this. You go in that room and you're that. And I and I'm including when you introduce yourself, when you how you carry yourself. Every time you walk into a room like that, to me, is like the beginning of an identity crisis because you're trying to emulate what is successful. You're trying to emulate what this person's done. Forty five Broadway shows, and and they look like this, and they do this, and they've done that. And I want to have their career. And it's like, you can't have their career because it's their career. Why don't you go in pursuit of yours? And you're wasting time stepping into it, trying to step where somebody else has stepped. And the reality is there's a lot of forest. And sometimes we need to start clearing the sticks on our own path. Yo, I don't think there's anywhere to go from there. So we're going to continue this fucking conversation, young people. (laughs) All right. Because this, this, Morgan, you are a gift. I am so lucky to have you on here. Everybody listening, please like and subscribe and rate this so we can keep this conversation going. Uh, Check us out on all the social medias afterwards and get into Morgan. It this is this conversation is amazing and it's it's such a gift to go into September with you doing this because as artists, we're at a very interesting precipice. And it's so refreshing to just continue these conversations with such authenticity. I say it over and over again. Yes, exactly. So, yo, everyone out there, thank you so much for checking in on this. We've got three more episodes coming your way. If you haven't, by the way, you now have eight episodes to binge on with some no-nonsense actors giving their POV on everything we've been talking about. Um, so until I see you guys next time, be healthy, be actionable, and most importantly, be authentic. Yes. Much love. For Fuck's Sake Podcast is brought to you by Alvarez Kiko Salazar Productions, hosted and produced by Aaron Salazar. Original music by Manuel Paleo and Giancarlo Bonfanti. Please like, rate, and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at 4FS underscore podcast and on Twitter and Facebook at 4FS podcast. Thanks so much. Much love.